Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, March 18, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Evan Thomas and Akil Redemar discuss the life and legacy of the first female Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. Well, it's such an honor to be uh, with you all. Thank you all for coming uh, to talk about this extraordinary book, which I've had a chance to, to read over the weekend. I urge you all to do the same. There's a, a very smart and stylish uh, review uh, of the book by the great Jeff Tubin in today's New York Times. Um, so I commend that to you. This book is several books in one. Um, it, and speaking of, of stylish, it's, it's beautifully written. Um, the opening scene of the Lazy Bee Ranch and, and uh, its, its beauty, its, its desolation, the big sky of, of the West it could come out of Willa Cather um, or... Um, um, uh, uh, Truman Capote. It, 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 it's, it's beautifully um, uh, rendered, Wallace Stegner. Um, and um, so I do commend it to you. Um, uh, we're going to have four different parts of our conversation today, um, and they all basically come from the front page, uh, the, the cover. So um, Evan Thomas, uh, New York Times bestselling author, first, Sandra Day O'Connor, an intimate portrait of the first woman Supreme Court justice. So I want to begin um, uh, with this intimate portrait. And boy, is it intimate. It was authorized. Um, uh, Evan had access to everything. There are moments when we are in the medicine cabinet of her master bed, uh, bathroom um, and, and, t- t- talk and, and, and learning about um, uh, prescription choices made by the O'Connors there, their medications um, and, and the like. But, um, so it, it's, it, it's very much a, a life story of one utterly extraordinary human being. I hadn't really realized just what an extraordinary person she was. So I'd like you to tell us the life story, the arc of this, this life story of um, Sandra Day O'Connor, sort of childhood, uh, education, uh, um, uh, um, higher education, and you actually um, found some really interesting things about what happened at Stanford um, that didn't stay at Stanford, perhaps, or maybe they did. Um, uh, her, her life um, as a, um, a wife, a, a mother, a young lawyer, um, uh, um, and uh, later lawmaker and state judge, her time on the Supreme Court, her time afterwards. So that's the life arc. Um, and so tell us a little bit about the person, Evan. <laughs> Akil, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be with Akil, uh, to be on the same stage with him, and really happy to be here. Believe it or not, I wrote my first ever high school history paper in the library upstairs in 1969. <laughs> True story. Uh, Sandra Day, Day uh, grew up on a ranch that was one-fifth the size of Rhode Island, no running water, no electricity, a very harsh, desolate uh, environment, which she loved. Uh, partly because of the wildness of it, 
but also because of what she learned from her father, who was a tough guy, but who taught her self-reliance. Uh, and her favorite story was that uh, at the age of 15, she had to drive the lunch out to the cookout, to, to the roundup out, out on the prairie. And uh, she had a flat tire uh, and she could barely change the tire. She was 15 years old. She finally did. She arrives and her father just looks at her and says, you're late. She said, well, I had a flat tire. And he said, leave earlier. <laughs> uh, and she was that way with her clerks, you know, no excuses. Uh, so she learned self-reliance, but she also had a very loving mother. And she learned another very important lesson from mom. Dad could be a little harsh at night uh, if he'd had a drink or two. And her mom, who was a very elegant woman, subscribed to Vogue and always wore hose and dresses on this dusty ranch. She, her mom just would not take the bait. Her father would try to provoke her. And Sandra just would, and Sandra's mom just would not go for it. And Sandra, that was a very important lesson for a woman who's going into an extremely harsh male environment. The first ever majority leader of the Arizona State Senate. You can imagine what that was like. Uh, but before I, I get there... On the court, she's going to be the only woman. Right. But she learns how to be one of the boys from the beginning because all the ranch hands... They're all boys. Uh, and, uh, and they treat her like a boy. And she holds her own cutting cows out. And she, she can fire a rifle and drive a truck by the time she's 10 years old. She goes to... Her dad sends her to Stanford, which she loves. And it's an awakening because they had a course there called Western Civilization, which is... Uh, by modern academic lights, a little too triumphal, but gave her a strong sense of the importance of the rule of law. And I read her, her final exam when she, was, she went to college at the age of 16. I read her final exam. It was a brilliant piece of work as a 17-year-old girl fresh off the ranch. She was really smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, many interesting things happened to her in college, one of which she was proposed to four times. Uh, this is after World War II, a lot of men looking to get married. Uh, one of those proposals, this is our little scooplet in the book, uh, she, uh, oh, my wife Osi, who's with me here tonight and I, who was do, doing research with me, we were looking for the love letters. There were no love letters in the, her papers. Where are they? And we were in her chambers, and her old, Justice O'Connor's old secretary took us into a closet in the basement, a little box marked correspondence. And sure enough, we find not only the love letters between her and her husband, John, but 14 letters from Bill Rehnquist (laughs) to Sandra. Bill Rehnquist has just left Stanford Law School to go to be a clerk for Justice Jackson. Sandra's still a third-year student, and Bill Rehnquist is lonely. And along about letter six, it is, will you marry me, Sandy? They never told anybody. Neither Bill Rehnquist nor Sandra Day O'Connor ever told their own families about this. Uh, that's one reason why I guess we, were, we got to these papers, because their family didn't get, have a chance to get rid of them first. Uh, uh, you know, intimate portrait, you see, uh, <laughs> right there, intimate portrait. Uh, she said no, because she, she was already in love with, with John. Uh, they, and later, I, the other justices also did not know it, although they knew that they had dated and... and Blackman, Justice Blackman, who sat next to Rehnquist, uh, when Sandra Day O'Connor came on the bench, uh, Blackman leaned over to Rehnquist and he said, now no fooling around. <laughs> uh, she, she, 
leaves. And Justice Powell with, was quite smitten with her too, actually. In a very courtly, in oh, a no, very no, but courtly that, gentleman. But oh no, but that one story about you know let's let's swap spouses. Yeah, it's a little awkward. This is the couple of geeks. <laughs> you see, he's, he's he's holding back on the good stuff. <laughs> she he when he was when she, when Powell resigned, she came in and they had a tearful embrace, and Powell awkwardly said, maybe we should have run off together. And looks, it's John standing in the corner and said, well, maybe not. (laughs) Uh, uh, She leaves Stanford. She goes to Phoenix. And, you know, she can't, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but she can't get a job with any law firm. She has to hang a shingle in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, basically a parking lot in a strip mall. Uh, Whereas her husband, who didn't do as well in law school, uh, is at the fancy law firm. But she is a force, and she becomes, she and John become kind of the ruling couple of Phoenix in the, in the 60s. And she becomes, she goes into politics partly because private law is closed to her. She has to go into public life. So she becomes, it's a, it's a, it's a longer story, but head of the state legislature, first woman ever to be the head of a state legislature. Uh, this is highly relevant because she is the last Supreme Court justice who ever had to run for office. Mm-hmm. Think of this, Earl Warren and Black and other, but she's the last one. Eight of the current justices were um, uh, sitting federal court of appeals judges at the time of their elevation to the Supreme Court. And the fourth, Elena Kagan, was solicitor general, which is kind of a very judicial position, uh, the t- uh, proverbially known as the 10th justice. But she had, she had to deal with the real world of politics, uh, including a, uh, uh, her, her nemesis was a fellow named Goodwin who was a drunk, a, a drunk by 10 a.m. drunk. Uh, and she finally called him out and told him he was a drunk. And, she, and he said, if you were a man, I'd punch you in the nose. And she said, if you were a man, you could. <laughs> so, but, but mostly, mostly she didn't get into fights. She, she learned how to walk away from stupid fights. And yes, one of her aides found her crying in the ladies' room once. I mean, she was a, an emotional person. She was, she was not impervious to hurt. But she was very self-controlled in public. And, and uh, handled herself with this kind of aplomb and uh, made her way onto the bench, but no higher than an intermediate state court. So she's, when she goes to the Supreme Court, her least favorite law course in law school was constitutional law, and she's been an intermediate state court of appeals judge. That is not a lot of preparation for the United States Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, she gets there partly because there aren't any other Republican women judges. In 1980, I, I think out of 600 federal judges, there are eight women. And they're almost all Democrats. So she's kind of it. What uh, do you mean she's it? Why does it have to be a woman? Well, because you, you Reagan, tell the story. This is, Reagan makes it, Reagan is down in October of 1980, Reagan running for president, is down as there's a, a, a gap. The gender gap. The gender gap. Reagan's down by 10 points with women in Illinois, a swing state. And as one of his campaign aides says, hey, you got to do something. So he says, okay, I promise to put the ne- a woman on the Supreme Court. At the Justice Department, they don't really believe it. The aides to the William French Smith, they, they think they, they, they can appoint Bob Bork. But Reagan does mean it. Uh, James A. Baker, his chief of staff, told me, he said, well, you can be sure uh, the president consulted Nancy on this. Uh, and, and Reagan is serious. He wants a woman. And so it's got to be a woman it has to be and a woman. presumably a Republican woman. Right. Uh, the, the most qualified, actually, is Amalia Kurse, who's a liberal Democrat. So, uh, so she, she passes her test. You're on the Second test. Circuit. She passes her, her, her test, partly a matter of, of she's it. But Reagan likes her because she's, uh, 
she's, she, she's very good at men. Mm-hmm. Sandra Day O'Connor was terrific at men in a, in a way, in a non-sexually flirtatious way. Right. She was, and they're, they're Western ranch people. And they're Western. They like to talk horses and ranching. And, and uh, she had an easy way about her. And he, he, was, he liked her, and so he named her. So she gets to the Supreme Court, and they're not 100% glad to see her. Uh, they have just devoted eight to one to do- drop Mister before Justice. Uh, the the one was Harry Blackman, who uh, wrote Roe Ro v. Wade, who is the most suspicious of her at all because he thinks that she's going to be a vote to do away with Roe v. Wade. That she is a Reagan appointee is going to lead the charge to do away with Roe v. Wade. He's wrong about that. That's a big story in, in the book mm-hmm. uh, about how she finds a middle way and doesn't actually do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Blackman is not glad to see her uh, and treats her uh, coldly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, when she goes to her first lunch at the Supreme Court, she finds that there are only four other justices there. Four of them aren't even coming to lunch. She's surprised by this. It's a kind of a cold place. And why is that? Because the Brethren has just come out. And the justices aren't sure who leaked. And they don't really totally trust each other. The, the uh, book by, our, uh, by Bob Wood. I'm sorry, by Bob, a uh, famous... Uh, and Scott Armstrong. Revealing book about the Supreme Court, kind of tell-all the about expose. the Supreme Court. Expose. That came out in 1979. So that she comes into an environment where they're wary of each other, much less wary of her. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not universally true. There are some warm relationships. There are people like Justice Brennan who are fantastically political. But she, one thing she does is she gets the other justices to come to lunch together. She would show up in their chambers, and she'd just say, you're coming to lunch. And she wouldn't leave until they came. Uh, Justice Thomas, a few years later, this is an an affecting story to me. Justice Thomas, as you recall, uh, had a very rough confirmation hearing because of Anita Hill. Mm -hmm. And he gets to the court, and he told me, I I felt hammered, as I already used, hammered, and uh, lonely. And the first, after the first conference, he's walking back to his chambers, and she walks with him, and she said, uh, those, ham- those hearings were very damaging. And he doesn't know what to say, damaging to him personally, damaging to the court, so he doesn't say anything. And she doesn't say anything either. But, and he's, he, doesn't come, he doesn't come to lunch, but she keeps coming back. Every day she walks with him from the conference to his chambers, and she says, Clarence, you got to come to lunch. And finally she says, Clarence! you got to come to lunch. And he does. And he Yes, said it, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And he said it changed everything for him. He, he, he suddenly folded himself into the court. And she, I'm sure she did, not, she did not like the Anita Hill allegations one bit. Mm-hmm. But she had an understanding that life has to go on. They're on that court for life. they got to work together. And that was very her practical human mindset. We have to work together whether we like each other or not. Uh, and we have to be respectful, and we got to get along. And so when Justice Scalia was insulting to her in opinions, saying, for instance, that her opinion on abortion could not be taken seriously, and her clerks start to write rejoinders into her opinions, she takes it out. Mm-hmm. She, she's not going to pick a fight, not a public fight with the justice, and even not even a private fight. Because you said she learned on the ranch that she wouldn't be baited in right. general. Not, right. She's not going to take. There are times you've got to be decisive and you've got to stand up for yourself, but she's not going to allow herself to be provoked. So we're going to segue into the next segment, which is you know, about the court a little bit, with a little bit a tighter focus. Um, um, or the, um, but um, just a bit on 
um, the, the remainder of the arc of her, her life, and she's still around, um, but just um, uh, you, you brought us to sort of her, her time on the court. She's now first. This is halfway into the book, but, but what about the rest? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a poignant story. She, she loves to dance. Uh, she's a kind of a steely figure and a little scary to her clerks and, and to, to journalists, but she actually is very fun-loving. She liked to dance. She liked to tell dirty jokes privately, uh, and she liked to have a good time. She loved her husband. She had a great love affair with her husband. But he gets Alzheimer's, and uh, he starts to fade away, and she wants to take care of him, and she would take him to her chambers, and he would sort of sleep on the bench there. And finally, she decides that she has to retire uh, to care for him. She leaves before she wishes to, but she does it. She says, I, John sacrificed for me. Now I'm going to sacrifice for him. She leaves the court. And, of course, his dementia progresses, and he can't recognize her anymore. And he's in a, he's in a home, and he, he has what they call a mistaken attachment. He, he has a relationship with another woman. And she would come in to the home there, and he'd be holding hands with this other woman, and she would sit down and hold his other hand. Uh, public- and he described that other woman as to her? Oh, he said, this, he entered, he said, uh, he said, to Sandra, I'd like you to meet my wife, referring to the other woman. Uh, incredibly painful. Publicly, she said, I'm happy for him because he had been very depressed and he was not depressed anymore. Privately, it broke her heart and she started traveling relentlessly. She could not stop traveling. I was reminded of, a, of Teddy Roosevelt lost his mother and his wife on Same one thing. night. Yeah. And Teddy Roosevelt wrote, wrote that black care cannot travel on a horse whose pace is fast enough. And Sandra Day O'Connor was a, she traveled relentlessly. They tried to stop her, but she would take any invitation anywhere just to keep moving, just to... All around the world. All around the world, trying to outrun her grief. And then she herself succumbed succumbed to Alzheimer's. Okay. So that's the intimate portrait, and it's it's quite compelling. now, but that's not the title. The title is First, okay? And you're, you're telling a story about the first woman on the Supreme Court. Um, and the leitmotif of this book is um, the story of women in America, basically, from um, the Great Depression to the current moment. And, and, and she's a reflection of that, an embodiment, a prism, um, through which um, we can see this larger story. That's, that's in the background. And maybe just talk a little bit about, because there's, there's the character in the foreground, and then there's a larger historical story that you're, you're trying to tell. She, when she was at law school, she was, they didn't rank class at Stanford, but she was probably in the top three, order of the coif. She could not get a job at any law firm on the West Coast. Nobody in Los Angeles or San Francisco would even give her an interview except for one firm gave her an interview to be a secretary and asked her if she could type. So that's the world that she's going into. Interesting. And that law firm, by the way... Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. And later, what, how does that law firm come into the story? The attorney general of the United States who calls her to summon her to Washington to interview for the Supreme Court William was a French partner. Smith. William French Smith had been a partner at Gibson, Dunn. And she said when, Gibson, when, he, when the attorney general calls, when... Attorney General Smith calls. She says to him, you wouldn't be calling about secretarial work now, would you? (laughs) So she's way ahead of her time. Uh, And the the law is a male place. 
but she has to deal with it. So she, she's- As the ranch was. As the ranch was. She's optimistic. She doesn't brood about it. She goes to the public sector. She goes to the local DA and says, I want to work for you. And he says, I don't have any jobs. I don't have any money. She says, I'll do it for free. I don't have any place for you to sit. I'll sit at the secretary's desk. He, he hires her. That's, and, she, and then she says, I was always grateful because I was thrust into public life. Uh, so she made the most of it. She didn't, you know, she didn't complain about it. She just dealt with it. And she was very self, always self-confident about herself and realistic about it. Uh, uh, you know, she, she knew that it was going to take time, that none of this was going to happen fast. She was a patient person mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Now, um, of course, she's first on the Supreme Court. Um, and most people you know, would know her not for her just um, extraordinary superwoman characteristics. She plays tennis, she plays golf, she skis, she's a, a ranch hand, she's a, an amazing dancer, she's a mom, she's a, a, a mother, um, uh, um, she's in the legislature. She, you know, they might not know that she's the first woman uh, a speaker uh, uh, to lead a, a state legislative chamber. Most people would know her as the first woman justice on the Supreme Court. Now, what does your book tell us, really, about that, about the Supreme Court in particular, and her contributions as Justice O'Connor? She was, uh, she was an incrementalist. She was very practical. I mentioned earlier that she was the last justice to be elected to office. She bought a political small p mindset to the Supreme Court. She wanted to get things done. She had a very keen sense of the impact of her decisions on the real world. She was not theoretical. She was not doctrinal. She did not leave any kind of doctrinal legacy at all. I was once speaking to her in her, in her rest home, and, and I started to engage her in conversation about doctrine. She said, oh, those kooky ideas, and just swept it away. Uh, so her, her view, she was a minimalist. Uh, what does that mean? She didn't want to make more law than she absolutely had to. She did not like sweeping generalities. She didn't like it when other justices tried to salt into their opinions, footnotes or dicta that would uh, be used by lower court judges to expand the meaning of the law. She wanted a, she liked narrowly construed cases. She wanted to move one step at a time. She was very, uh, uh, she played sort of small ball that way. She was not a grand theoretician at all, but she was intensely practical a lot of the academics didn't love her uh, because she was. <laughs> I'm sitting. One is sitting here. Uh, Guilty. Uh, right, but she, that's true. Uh, uh, so she does not leave a great doctrinal legacy at all. But, but, and it's an important but, she's the decisive vote in 330 cases in 25 years, and she's the one who preserves abortion rights, even though they think that. She's going to be the one to get rid of them. In the 1992 Casey decision, she puts together a coalition, a troika, uh, to, with the two other justices to preserve abortion rights, limited. You know, she changes, the, she changes it, but, but she preserves it. Uh, and she's really the one who does that. Stand, the undue burden standard, that's her. Uh, on affirmative action, same thing. They think they're going to sweep that away. That's a very important issue. She is the one, narrowly 
but she preserves it. In a case uh, called Gruder, basically preserving Baki, a case from the 1970s before her time on the court. So affirmative action and, and, and abortion, those are two of the biggest things they do. On, on religious liberty, the conservatives would like to allow more religion in public life. Because she's a woman, she's a little wary of that. She understands what it's like to be an outsider. So when they talk about whether you can have a cross on the lawn or the Ten Commandments, her test is, does it make an ordinary citizen feel like an outsider? Because she's a woman and she's been an outsider, she can understand that. And she frustrated her conservative brethren by doing that. Okay. Lastly, and, and most significantly... The is, um, elephant, pun intended, in the room no, is... She's the fifth vote in Bush v. Gore. And uh, right, he hisses, I already hear the hisses and boos. Uh, and uh, as, as Jeff, Jeff Tubin writes in his review of my book this week, that was the shabbiest uh, case in a, in a long time. I don't share that view, and we should, we should talk about it. Uh, but she certainly, and, and, and interestingly, she was somebody who regretted very little. She was not somebody to look back. She was uncomfortable about that case. And indeed, she did finally tell the Chicago Tribune a few years after it happened, maybe we shouldn't have taken that case. It's the only case, well, actually, there's one other campaign finance case, but there are 670 opinions. It's the only one where you can hear publicly or even privately going, uh, maybe not. It was a hard, hard case. And we can get in, if, if you like, yeah. into the... Okay, let's, let's do let's that. Let's get into it. So, well, um, but, so I told you we're really going to be meditating on, on this. So we've talked a little bit about how this is an intimate portrait, and we've talked a little bit about how she's the first woman, um, and the larger story of, of women gender, on the Supreme Court, okay, but now here's something else, and this is, this is a real challenge for you and everyone else who attempts judicial biography. Um, uh, so this is, it's almost black and white, this almost sort of sepia. Here's one big problem. You know, a biography, ideally, you want to, it wants to be about something, someone quite interesting, but it's not supposed to be about the personality of the judge. That's why they wear black robes, you see. It's not supposed... Um, maybe a president can have a personality, and, and we've had some with personalities, in case you haven't noticed. Um, um, but justices aren't quite supposed to be that. It's supposed to be about the law. They are muses. Uh, they, they're, they're just... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, just oracles channeling um, the law. Um, so this creates a real challenge, actually, for the biographer... Because um, I actually find her a compelling person, but not necessarily compelling jurist. Um, and just to pick up right where we left, it always used to bug me that um, Bush versus Gore, which I think is the worst decision of my adult lifetime, mm-hmm. um, and she's the driving force behind it. And I, I always suspected that, but now I, you actually you know, out her on, yeah. on all that. Anyone can make a mistake, but it bugged me that she basically just kept saying when people asked about it, get over it, um, which is exactly what Scalia said. Oh, but now I see a little bit more, because that's what she learns on the ranch. You can't look back. You know, you've got to move forward. It's part of a larger, I don't, I'm not sure it's the right jurisprudential approach to be this unself-aware, unwilling to acknowledge past mistakes and, and all the rest. But I do see it's part of her, her life force. But talk to us a little bit about the, the, the problem of judicial biography, you see, um, 
it's not quite an oxymoron. Maybe it's not like military intelligence or something like that, or <laughs> military or music, music right? you, you know. Yeah. But, but there is a real tension because judges are basically, if they're really good judges, maybe boring people. And if they're really interesting people, maybe they're not good judges. Judicial biographies are boring. They're usually a march. I, I was trying to avoid saying it, but they are. They are okay. usually a march through the cases, uh, you know, incremental case by case. Interesting maybe to lawyers, but not to a general public. Right. Uh, and so, this is interesting to a general public. I hope so. Uh, y- 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 you know, I was, I was lucky. You, you really can't write a good Supreme Court biography <laughs> unless you have total access. Because it's, it's a, although their opinions are public, and they're, as a, ju- as a branch of government, they're open in that sense. They are justifying their decisions in writing. Their real lives and their inner workings are secret. That conference room, it's secret. Not, not even... Court personnel allowed in there, only the nine justices. Uh, their papers are secret. Their clerks are sworn to secrecy. You can't get at it unless you have, as I did, a letter from her saying, please talk to my biographer and access to her papers. Even then, it's, it's, you need help. And I, my wife and I interviewed 95 of her clerks. Uh, and we needed that help because we needed Sherpas through the mountain passes, somebody to, to guide us. Uh, and, and even with that access, it can be an, an opaque process. But my solution to this was she wrote 670 opinions. I write about maybe 20 of them. But I write about the important ones. And I think if you, if you narrow the focus and you just get into a few big cases, you can get at, uh, because, you know, people really don't care about the other 640 cases. Maybe tell us, and then I'll move to uh, a related point. Um, One case that you didn't tell us about, um, and they may not know about, but I thought it's quite interesting, and it's where her life story interacts with the law, I think, in a powerful way. And it's one of my favorite opinions um, of hers. Um, Tell us about the the, um, Mississippi uh, nurse case, the Hogan case. The Hogan case. This is a case that, that comes up in her uh, first year on the court. Uh, and uh, you, how many of you have seen the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie? Uh, probably all of you, right? Well, the, you remember there, one of the key cases is, if you're trying to fight for gender rights, very clever idea, do it for a man who's being denied something. And the Hogan case was about that. It was a man who wanted to go to the Mississippi University for Women Nursing School. Uh, and Justice uh, O'Connor wrote the opinion in that. And it's this whole idea of making st- small incremental steps to ease the court's scrutiny. The, the court is well into protecting minorities and particularly African Americans, not doing that for women. Mm-hmm. And the goal of the activists is to make them do what they do for blacks do that for, for women, women as well. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg understands on the outside, and Justice O'Connor on the inside understands this has to be done slowly and incrementally. And this is a case that she takes on and writes an opinion. And interestingly, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is at the time a court of appeals judge in the, the court below. And she brings home Justice O'Connor's opinion in the Hogan case and she gives it to her husband, Marty. Remember Marty from the movie? And Marty reads it and says to Ruth, did you write this? They're that, they're that close on, on how to move this through the process. So this was a policy 
that actually, from a certain point of view, favored women. It was a nursing school for women and women only, a, a public version of Smith or Wellesley or Mount Holyoke. You, you might think, this is good. It's a safe space for women. Keep the, 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 the dirty, loud, nasty, um, uh, harassing boys out of the whole thing. This is good. This is um, 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 helping um, women move into professional ranks. And she says... No, it's, stere- it, you know, it's a gender stereotype. Um, and, and I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been with her on that, that in general, um, when government starts treating men and women differently, even if it seems to help women, it doesn't. That pedestal is really a cage. It's a glass ceiling. Um, uh, and that's... Uh, but, well, but the very first thing she did as a state legislature was to get rid of an eight-hour-a-day limit on how long women could work in Arizona. That was a protective bit of legislation, sort of Victorian paternalism. We're going to protect these little women so they can only work eight hours a day. Well, she got rid of that. That was the very first thing she did as a state legislator, get rid of that, because she believed that men and women were equal and should be treated equally in all circumstances. So here's my thought on that. I'm with her on on those things. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, on this very stage, and you can go back and see it on C-SPAN if you want, tells a a beautiful, it's a one-hour lecture here about protective legislation all the way back to 1908, uh, which kept women basically out of the workforce um, in the guise of of protecting uh, them. But it was protecting them from um, getting a paycheck um, and being able to compete equally. But here's... being a lawyer. Here's what actually, I th- and, and I thought Hogan was pretty good, but here's what she could have said. And if she had been, you know, I would say a greater jurist. And uh, she, so she's right. She says stereotype. Here's what I wanted her to say. I wanted her to say, this is actually channeling women into a field um, where uh, women are already overrepresented and underpaid because it's seen as women's work. It would be, here's the key thing about being a nurse. You're not a doctor. And you're supposed to help the doctor, and you're in a, a position of subordination and uh, vis-a-vis a superordinated uh, a doctor. And it might have been different if it was a medical school for doctors for women, women only. And so, so I, you know, what I wanted was, in her opinion, there and elsewhere, a little bit more of the deep reasoning about uh, um, uh, sexual stratification and subordination in America. She just didn't write that way. Yeah. She was an incrementalist. She liked to, to inch things forward, fact by fact. If her clerks tried to write that way, yeah, I can I imagine pull it was her clerk <laughs> typing this brilliant reasoning, and she would take a big pencil and go, I, I, X. I, I submitted my application way back when. Uh, so. She just, she, when, her, when, her, when her brilliant clerks tried to do that, she'd stop it. Yeah. She, she was a minimalist. Uh, she didn't want to, she wanted to inch things along. She had a very pragmatic notion, and she was afraid of unintended consequences. Yes. She didn't. She thought judges should be very careful about grand pronouncements that created consequences that they could not foresee. So we're going to get into questions very soon. Since we brought um, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg into the conversation, maybe one other way of, of thinking about her um, uh, role in history. Um, she's the first. How different would it have been since Marty Ginsburg says, "Gee, did you write this, Ruth? That you could have written this." How would history have been different if, say, 
Carter had won re-election in 1980, and it had been Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the first woman on the Supreme Court, or Shirley Hofstadler, or Pat Wald, or someone else. In, in baseball terminology, you know, uh, something, you know, um, uh, what are her wins above replacement? You know, which is a big baseball statistic. If you put in someone else in her place, some other woman as the first woman, how different you know, would, would another woman of her generation, um, who obviously would have had to be a very special woman um, uh, to, to get that position, how, and who knows, of course, it's a counterfactual, but, but, but you have to think about this as an historian, well, especially because you say, first, oh, it's the first. Uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson, who is now a, a U.S. Court of Appeals judge and was taught also in constitutional law at UVA Law School a very long time ago, uh, said to us, and I quoted him in the book, that really it was a good thing that a traditional woman was the first mm-hmm. uh, because it, it eased the transition that she was a, she, and she saw herself as a bridge from an earlier generation. A more activist, more aggressive woman would have ruffled some feathers. Now you might say that's a good thing, but her own view was to do this as a, as a transitional figure, to build a bridge that others could come across, to be the first wave to hit the beach, if you will, she, she was a traditional woman. She wouldn't even wear pantsuits when she was in the legislature. She wore skirts. She was very conscious of not being threatening. It's clever. By being non-threatening, it was easier for her to replace males. Um, so a whole bunch of questions here. Um, so I want get, to get you all into the conversation. So here's one that flows, I think, very naturally. What was her relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and then later with Sonia Sotomayor or uh, uh, Elena Kagan. I don't know if Irving is here in the audience or not. Um, he sometimes comes, uh, Elena's uh, right. a, a sibling. Um, so um, Sure. Uh, well, she was glad. Ruth, she'd been on the court for 12 years when Justice Ginsburg arrived. And two, a couple of good things. One is they finally put in a women's room by the, near the conference room. Uh, she, all, she, she, she said that she was glad to have an ally. But Ruth Ginsburg and Sandra O'Connor were not close. They're not cozy close. They're not intimate. They weren't pals. They were allies. They were friends. They were supportive. But, but Ruth Ginsburg told Osi and me that not once in all of her time on the court did Justice O'Connor ever come to her chambers to talk about a case, mm-hmm. uh, which is revealing. Uh, there is another story which is fun. I heard from Justice O'Connor's driver or, or messenger, uh, Romeo Cruz, that Justice O'Connor uh, smashed into Justice O'Connor's car. Justice the, Ginsburg. Excuse me. Justice Ginsburg drove into Justice O'Connor's car in the basement twice. And that, but that, in, in her defense, is because... You know, New Yorkers, Manhattanites don't drive. Well, that was, no, no, no. And you, no, you it's say really this, true. You know, Justice no. O'Connor had been driving a tractor at the at age 10 of 10. 10. Right. And Justice Ginsburg learned how to drive a car in her 30s when she moved to Washington. So Osi and I asked Justice Ginsburg, kind of at the end of the interview, because I wasn't quite sure what, how she was going to react, did you really rear end Justice <laughs> O'Connor's car? And she said, oh, yes, it's true. She said, I never drove again. <laughs> She says she explained that I was so worried about hitting Justice Scalia's car that I drove into Justice O'Connor's car. But you also say that Justice O'Connor had a very clever way of fixing the problem, bribing. Oh, the, yeah, uh, bribing. She bribed the 
practical woman. She bribed the court personnel to park Justice Ginsburg's car for her. To valet park it. Okay. You know, so you see, just a, she's Always a very good. practical, um, solution-oriented person. Now, since we're talking about the first woman, and I said, what's her relationship? But what about with um, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan? And how? Do, what do they say about her? What does she say about them? Justice Sotomayor came after her, but, but they're, they're not overlapping. The very first person is show up in her chambers for Justice Sotomayor on her first day is Justice O'Connor. And what she said to Justice Sotomayor was, be decisive. Because if you're not firm and you're decisive, they won't take you seriously around here. Mm-hmm. And Justice Sotomayor remembered that. And Justice Sotomayor had been, you know, she'd been always been a, uh, uh, Justice O'Connor had always been an inspiration that you would actually be a, a woman Supreme Court justice. Now here she is in her office telling her, you know, how to do it. And that had a huge impact. Justice Kagan is in Justice uh, uh, O'Connor's old chambers, and and I think is re- somewhat similar to Justice O'Connor and regards her as a bit of a role model as a small p political uh, uh, justice who can help get majorities, who is practical minded, uh, and uh, 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 was very respectful of that. Sotomayor and Kagan are grateful to Justice O'Connor for paving the way. So that leads to the next question, which is now, because she's first, she doesn't have quite that exact role model. So who were her role models and inspirations as um, uh, a woman justice? Well, that's the fascinating thing, because, of course, there were none. She's brand new. There is no role model. She, in fact, they, she gets there. They don't even help her set up her office. She's lost. She, she, was, she missed the... She missed the Arizona sunshine. She would come out in, in the courtyard on gray days and turn her face up looking for the sun. She was lonely, and she wrote this in her diary. It was cold. Uh, at her very first argument, oral argument, she knows that the, all the press is out there waiting to see, listen for her first question. So she waits for a half an hour, and finally she starts to ask a question, and counsel talks over her. You're not supposed to do that to a justice, but rolls right over her. And she wrote in her diary that night, I felt put down. Now, that was not a feeling that Justice O'Connor ever had for very long. And she learned very quickly how to, how to hold her own with a limited background. And one measure of it was that Justice Powell was writing in his diary, or writing to his family within a couple of weeks, that she was brilliant and could hold her own. Okay, so... You know, it's about her as a justice, but also her as a human being. So we got asked a question as a human, okay, and a woman. So what kind of mother was she? And I'll add to that a little bit more daughter, um, sister, spouse, wife. She was, she was a hardworking mom who wasn't home all that much. But when she was, she was a good mom. I obviously spent a lot of time with her three sons. She had three sons. Vigorous, active. Again, surrounded by boys. Surrounded by boys. Just like in the ranch, just like at work, you know. One of her sons has climbed Mount Everest. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said the only time she ever saw Justice O'Connor look nervous was when they were in conference and there was a knock on the door and it was Justice O'Connor's secretary and they did very rarely knock down that door to interrupt conference saying that it was Sandra O'Connor's son calling from Mount Everest. Uh, fortunately, he just finished the climb. And he's climbed the highest peak on every continent? On seven continents, the highest peak, and also been to the Titanic. The, the, this gene pool is unusual. Very adventurous. <laughs> Very adventurous. Uh, and so she was, you know, uh, she was a, a good mother, 
but she was a working mother. And uh, she had a, a, a string of domestics running the show. Uh, she would hire teenage boys as role models, but she was very much in charge. She, uh, uh, she, she, she paid attention from afar sometimes, but she was paying attention. Now, uh, her, two of her sons went to Stanford. Any evidence that uh, she bribed someone to... No, no, no. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just getting confused, okay? But, but... Um, uh, no, she... No, I, one son went to Colorado College, which is proof that she wasn't bribing anybody. Yeah, yeah. But she's also an amazing cook. You say she cooked every... Every recipe in Julia Child. And, and one of her friends said... Every recipe in... In Julia Child's cookbook. And one of her friends, oh, Sandra, do you have to do everything perfectly? You know, and always co- is cooking up stuff for the clerks and, and for Every friends. Saturday, she would have this boot court, and she would make lunch for her own clerks. And she's a spectacular dancer, and she and her husband would go dancing, what, every night except before oral arguments? This is a touching story, because one reason why she liked to dance and have fun, but she was the most social justice in history... A big reason for that was because her husband, having moved to Washington, was lonely and a little lost. He'd gone from being the big man in Phoenix, senior partner of the biggest law firm. In Washington, as a law, it was not a good fit. And she understood that he needed to go out at night so he could be the lion. At a dinner party, she would say, oh, John, tell us a story. And she would let him perform at night and dance. She told me, she said, I would have spent more time at home reading briefs. She had to read about 1,000 pages a night, uh, but she wanted. She did it for her for her husband. Okay, so you know, and these are some stereotypically female roles: a mother, wife. Um, how about um, daughter? Her dad doted on her and loved her. Was harsh with her, and there's that story I told about changing the tire. But said just was fascinated by her. Was fascinated by her intelligence. Uh, couldn't imagine her taking over the ranch because that was a male thing. Uh, wasn't quite sure what kind of a lawyer she was going to be, but knew how smart she was, and she basked in his love. She felt his love, his unconditional love. Okay. Um, some of these I'm just going to hold off there about you and writing the book and your relationship um, um, uh, with her. Um, uh, how about... Um, um, uh, we just need to get these out of the way because it's, it's important. We got several Bush v. Gore questions. Sure. Yeah. And, um, Let's um, get into it. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, why did she think um, it was maybe a mistake? Um, uh, you know, did she recognize that uh, she had turned the court into a, a political uh, slash partisan um, institution? We started talking about this, but just right. to, to, to get into this. Right. Uh, as you recall, the, the issue was all these hanging chads, and the question was, should they allow the voting to continue in the state of Florida? That the Republican Secretary of State had already certified a, a electors. Mm-hmm. Uh, had already declared Bush to be the winner. Mm-hmm. But the challenge was, no, no, this voting was flawed. It should go on. Mm-hmm. And the liberals all wanted that. In fact, they said, the, Justice Stevens said, well, what was the, you're not supposed to stop Recount. Recount, yeah. if there's, unless there's some irreparable harm. Yeah. Her view of this, and I learned most about this from Justice Ginsburg, who's on the other side, mm-hmm. that Justice O'Connor, practical as she was, was looking down the road and thinking, you know, if this voting goes on, we're going to have a car wreck. Because what if Gore does win the voting mm-hmm. and there's a Republican slate already certified. If you look at the law book, if you look at the rule book, what happens? It goes back to Congress. 
Yes, heaven forbid we actually follow the Constitution and the statutes. But, but oh listen, my God. Bear with me here. You have to think like you have to think like her. In January, it comes back from Congress. The House votes, they get a vote. That the House would have been Republican. The, the Senate would have been Democratic. And if there's a tie, the tie is broken by the governor of the state, whose last name was Bush. It was Jeb Bush. That was going to be a car wreck. And she thought that was going to be bad for the country. So better, she grew up in this ranch where if the windmill broke, which happened all the time, you had to fix it in 48 hours or the cows started to die from thirst. And she was a fix-it type. There were piles of junk all over the ranch, and they would fix these windmills quickly. And it was quick and dirty, and it didn't look pretty good, but it got the job done. That was her opinion, which I can see you were coiling from just as we speak. Yes. It was a... It was a, it was a I'm, I'm going to use a crude euphemism here, but yeah. it came from Justice Scalia. He says, as we said in Brooklyn, it was a piece of shit. Uh, that's the guy who was signed off on it. Yes, he agreed to do it just because otherwise it would have been clear to everyone that five justices could not possibly believe this preposterous theory that, that it was... And what was embarrassing uh, was they, they conservatively used an equal protection argument, which is... So it doesn't... It was embarrassing that they took the case because this is supposed to be for Congress to decide. And then when they took it, what they said was, you heard it directly from Justice Scalia, a piece of junk. Um, So on the morning it was partisan. Bad all around. Oh, and the one sentence that she contributes to this, which is the worst sentence of all, it's like the definition of not law is, don't try this at home, this is good for this case and only this case. That's the opposite of what law actually is, that you commit yourself to principles you're going to follow. And I, I knew always that she put that in because she, she's a kind of minimalist. But minimalism at the extreme is called lawlessness. If you don't give reasons um, for, you know, the future and don't connect it to something that actually is in the past, like, oh, precedence or, oh, the constitutional text. So so I don't like it, just in in case you missed it. No kidding. In the morning. Apart from that, it was great. In the morning of the decision came down, she said to one of her sons, half the country is going to hate me, including Akil, she thought to herself. But, but, But I didn't know the person. And what I found, as I said, I, I still don't think she's a great jurist. And, um, but I do think she's... I would, I would have so loved to have met her at, at her prime because she, her life force that you, that you bring off the page, and I'm going to ask some questions, uh, uh, is just extraordinary. So some of the questions are about your relationship to her, at what point was the biography um, um, authorized? Um, so tell, t- tell us a little bit about the backstory of the book. Yeah. It's, it's not an authorized biography. I had complete access, but authorized implies they have some control. She had no control. When did she, uh, was she, so she, because of course she's herself not 100% now in dementia. So she's, she never really read them, but you composed? She, she has not read it. Uh, I don't think right now she's capable of reading it because she has Alzheimer's. Her family made And how it. did you think about all of that? Well, it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had, I spent about six sessions with her we could talk she had she at that stage of her dementia she did have some long-term memory and we could talk about growing up the ranch and her marriage i asked her a couple things about cases including on affirmative action she was the one who said 25 more years Mm -hmm. we can do this for 25 more years and she said well maybe that was wrong Mm -hmm. she told me Mm -hmm. uh 
uncharacteristic regret on her part. Uh, but she was not in great shape. She would see me coming. I wasn't absolutely sure that she knew exactly who I was, but she would say when I came in, she would say, here comes trouble. <laughs> uh, most of this book does not come from her. It comes from her papers. It comes from her clerks. It comes from her family. Also, and I interviewed 350 people. It comes from all the people around her, not from her. So. Um. Tell us about the um, so um, what you had access to. Tell us also about um, uh, the second. Uh, what other uh, literature is out there? Joan Biskupic um, has has written something. She wrote a kind of memoir herself. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so tell us a little bit about about that. Uh, the Lazy Bee is a wonderful book that she wrote. That Sandra wrote, wrote about her growing up on the ranch, and uh, it's fascinating. Although she rarely talks about herself. Uh, Linda Greenhouse, in her review of The Lazy Bee, referred to it as a palimpsest. I always thought that was such an interesting term, meaning it was where you had to sort of look to see the lettering underneath, something that's been effaced and and covered over. But if you look very closely, you can see the lettering underneath. That's very much what The Lazy Bee is. It's not directly about her, but you get a sense of the world in which she grew up. Justice O'Connor had thought about doing her own memoir, and she wanted to have a legacy project, but I don't think she was capable of writing her own memoir because I don't think she really wanted to reveal herself. There was something very private about her, deep down. There's a piece of her that I didn't get at. I don't think anybody's ever going to get at. I don't think her husband John was going to get at. There was something profoundly private about her. That even her husband did? I don't think so. I had his diary every night, 20 years, not in there. Now, when did she, when was the connection made? Did you approach her? Did she approach you? Um, was, did she have entirely her, um, her, all her faculties, her wits about her when she first... Um, the, the history on this is she wrote a book called The Lazy Bee. The publisher was Random House. And Kate Medina, her editor, was after her for years to do her memoirs. And she thought about doing it. In fact, at one point they talked to me uh, about being a ghostwriter on it. But... Hmm. It, and then I never heard anything. Have you ghostwritten anything else? You don't have to no. tell us what. Okay. No. I, I, I was sort of relieved not to do it. Would I you have taken the gig? I might have, but was I don't I don't really think I want to be a ghostwriter. I, I may I want to leave the possibility to reverse that decision if the right <laughs> opportunity comes along. I've never ghostwritten anything. Oh, that's not true. Years ago, and it was an unhappy experience when I was mm-hmm. a young man. I did ghostwrite something. You know what I didn't do it. You know what Ted Sorensen actually said about whether he actually really ghost wrote um, uh, profiles and courage. He would get asked this all the time. You know what his answer was? What did he say? Ask not. <laughs> so, so um, it, 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 I didn't. She didn't want to do it. Okay. And so it didn't happen. Okay. Uh, so when, by the time I started dealing with her, she did have some dementia. Mm-hmm. A decision had been made to do a biography and to allow the author to have access to her papers. And a letter being you, me, and to have a letter to her colleagues asking them to cooperate. And when was that? That was in 2016, that letter went out. So that was three years ago. So you did this whole thing, you and your spouse, the the researching and the writing in less than three years. Yes. Wow. Um, uh, And uh, um, I just, I think uh, we have time maybe for one more. Okay. uh, maybe tell us also about the other, um, not just uh, uh, O'Connor in her own words, the lazy bee, but the other secondary literature 
um, that uh, that you know the other biographies uh, that are out there, the other accounts. Um, well, John Biskupic wrote, wrote a right, and, 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 and you also talk about you know some some other journalists. Our mutual friend Jeff wrote. Jeff Tubin wrote, wrote, wrote a book called The Nine. Which okay, is so, a, so tell us tell us what other people have have said about her and 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 how you are saying something maybe kind of slightly different. Well, Jeff Tubin's book The Nine is a wonderful book. But there's, and he did give you a very nice review to though so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to but one hand washes the other. But, but, okay. but no, nobody, nobody had the access that we had, mm-hmm. uh, so that nobody could write. I mean, I, Jeff would be the. Jeff said the book was revelatory. I think the book was revelatory to Jeff, because as I said, you really can't do this unless you have that kind of access, uh, and 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 we had it. I read lots of stuff. Uh, uh, I can't say I spent all night reading, you know, law review articles, but I read uh, uh, books by your your friend Rosen, uh, Jeff Rosen, Supreme Court book. Cass Sustine wrote a thing about minimalism that was uh, very useful to me. I spent a lot of time with the clerks trying to understand her jurisprudence, uh, particularly one named Dan Bustle, who explained Justice O'Connor's jurisprudence better than Justice O'Connor explained her jurisprudence. Uh, so we got a lot of help from the clerks. Uh, you know, you get a little bit here and you get a little bit there. There's no one source. It's at the end of the day what you get from all sources. Okay, final uh, question. One word, basically, um, legacy, question mark. You know, what's her legacy on the court? Is anyone on the court methodologically like her or sort of substantively like her? Um, you do talk about how she's kind of disappointed in a certain way um, about how the court has turned in certain ways her own, that the person in her own seat, Sam Alito, who's been with you all before on other occasions, has a rather different vision. So, so um, what do you predict? What is the legacy thus far? What do you predict it will be if we look back in 20 years? Uh, my own personal guess at this, that just as the Chief Justice of the United States is right now struggling in his own mind whether or whether he should be more like a pure doctrinal conservative, Scalia-like Federalist Society conservative, which is definitely a large part of what he is, or should he be more like Justice O'Connor, more pragmatic, more in the moment, less ideologically consistent, but very much an institutionalist who's worried about the court and its legacy and the rule of law. Uh, now, Bush v. Gore notwithstanding, yeah. Justice O'Connor was very sensitive to the rule of law, to the court's place in society, to the court not getting too far ahead or too far behind the public mood. I don't think she read polls, but she, she, she read the newspaper, and she had an intuitive, instinctive sense of the public mood. And I think the Chief Justice of the United States is, in his, is trying to decide, am I, I'm doing this too crudely, but am I in the Scalia wing of this, or am I more in the pragmatic, centrist, and, and, and more institutional, safeguarding the reputation of the court, O'Connor, School. He wouldn't. He doesn't see her as his as his as his mentor or a guide, although they were friendly. But I think that he's choosing which 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 one he's going to be. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.